Well, hi there, folks. Welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is Fred Reno, your host. In my latest episode, number 25, I interviewed Joy Ting, currently the coordinator of the Winemakers Research Exchange here in Virginia. Joy fell in love with the world of wine while visiting her husband in Northern California when he was stationed at Travis Air Force Base at that time. They would take several day trips up to Napa Valley and she was hooked. When they returned to Virginia, she realized quickly her degree in marine biology wasn't going to lead to a budding career in the Charlottesville area. So after taking several teaching positions, she then would go on to take some classes in viticulture at Piedmont Valley Community College, eventually teaching the science of winemaking at PVCC for some time. And then Michael Schaps offered her a position in 2013 as his lab technician at Schaps Wineworks, and that's where she got started. This would lead to her position working with the area's winemakers, coordinating and organizing their experimental winemaking trials. It is a fascinating interview. It will give you some real insight in the type of experimentation that is going on here in Virginia. Take a listen. Joy, welcome to my podcast. Thanks, Fred. It's great to be here. So, as we start at the beginning always, what's your story? How does the someone with a degree in marine biology get into wine? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I think I didn't really grow up with wine in the house very much. My parents uh, didn't really drink much at all, and if they did, it wasn't probably wine. When I was in college, my then-boyfriend, who's now my husband, spent some time um, at an Air Force base in Northern California. So he was... he. He would go out there for summers for training and then come back when he was in med school. And one weekend, they went out to visit Napa Valley because they had some leave off of the base. And after he came back from Napa Valley, he called me and he's like, you've got you've got to see this place. You've got to be here. So next time he was out there, I took a trip out to visit. And we just, I think, fell in love with the whole thing. The the wonderful, beautiful landscape, the the great family culture of a of sort of family owned business and family owned farming and the food and the wine and just this this culture of hospitality that goes along with it that makes you want to sit longer and you know enjoy each other's company a little bit more what year was that oh gosh that was probably in the mid mid 90s i think was that hamilton air force base i think he was at travis oh travis not, air force yeah i think he was at travis he was he was he was a medical person, so he was at the hospital that was there. So when did you end up back here in Virginia? So we came to Virginia after my husband had finished his Air Force uh, his Air Force duty in Georgia. Um, we came to Charlottesville for his job at the University of Virginia. He's an anesthesiologist. So he was an academic anesthesiologist here at UVA. And at that time, as you said, I had, I had finished a PhD in marine biology, and there's not a lot of marine biology to do here in Virginia. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there is on the East Coast, but not, not here in Charlottesville. So I started to teach. I've always loved teaching. I taught all through my graduate studies as well. So I taught at the community college and high school. Um, I taught chemistry and biochemistry and biotechnology and, um, of course, biology, which is my first love. So. Well, so was your first position in the wine industry with Michael Schaps? Well, there were two little things before that, but Michael definitely gave me my first big start. So when I was teaching, I actually did a, a, 
a science of wine class at PVCC when they were first, I actually took all of the PVCC courses when they first started their viticulture and enology certificate program. And then I, I did teach a science of wine class for a short time there. And then I had one summer stint at Ducard Vineyard. So Ducard, Scott needed uh, just an extra set of hands. So Julian had come on as their um, their viticulturist. They were not making their own wine at the time. He was selling his grapes. But sometimes they just needed an extra set of hands. So they would call me up and I would go out for a day or two to help out in the vineyard whenever it was needed. But then there was kind of a lull when I when I uh, went and became a full-time teacher. And then in 2013, I, I came back to it. Michael Schaps as I, Michael Schaps hired me to be his lab tech in 2013. And then if I'm accurate, you were, you did that for several years and then you got into being the winemaker and production manager. Yeah, so I started out in the lab just learning the, the techniques to do the, the general chemistry that's needed. Wineworks is one of the few places in Virginia that has a full-time lab person, um, really because there's so many so many different brands through the contract winemaking that there's just so much lab testing that you can support a whole position there. So the first year I was just doing the testing. The second year they started to call me the enologist, which meant that I kind of was... <laughs> doing some testing development and starting to interpret some of the numbers. That was the year that Ben Jordan left to go to Early Mountain. And so when Ben left, we sort of made two positions. Jake Bushing came on as the winemaker, but I started to be the production manager at that time. So that was sort of managing the day-to-day work that was happening in the cellar and kind of keeping things moving on the ground in, in that complicated environment. Well, then when Jake exited, did you you yeah, so moved into that role? Exactly. So it's when Jake ended up moving out, essentially out to the vineyard. We needed Jake right. in the vineyard that I started to take on more winemaking responsibilities at that time. So I got to train under some really great folks, you know, in the, in the course of time there. So Ben and Jake and, of course, Michael. Michael, it's amazing what he's doing there. And someday people will recognize the people have come through his operation. It reminds me of the early days of Robert Mondavi. Yeah. I, I mean, I think about who I got to work with when I was there, not just the winemakers I just mentioned, but a number of the folks that worked in our cellar that have gone on to to other positions as well. So uh, Hunter Ench was in the cellar when I was there, and then he went in to work in the vineyard at Afton, and now he's back at Wineworks um, as the vineyard manager. Um, so it's been fun to sort of watch him uh, get through that, that process as well, and, and many others. So the Winemakers Research Exchange, as I understand it, the Monticello Wine Trail originally funded the development of that. Were you involved yourself with the original folks like Emily and that? And how did you end up coming into becoming the full-time coordinator and running the show, let's just say, <laughs> right? Well, so the Deborah the actually started as the Monticello Research Exchange, as you said, in 2014. And it was... It was really a group of winemakers right here in the Monticello AVA. So Ben Jordan, who was the winemaker at Wineworks at the time, was one of the founding members of the WRE. So um, I, I remember in 2014, Ben explaining the concept to me and saying, you know, I'm, I want to write up a couple proposals for experiments. Can we work together to write them up? Because he knew I had a science background. So I sort of helped write them up a little bit and help with some of the execution of that, just because I was the one who had to take the data along the way. But then, and you know, as I was 
was moving into different roles at Wineworks, I was certainly a participant in the WRE. So I did experiments myself through the WRE in 2015 and 2016, 2017. I'm trying to remember which years I did experiments, but, and I would definitely go to the tasting. So I was well aware of kind of how things were working. Um, but it wasn't until 2018 that I transitioned from my role at Wineworks to being the research analogist for the WRE. Is that when the Virginia Wine Board took over the funding and became statewide, or was that prior to that? that? That was actually prior. So the Monticello Wine Trail provided seed money in 2014 for it to get started. And it was, honestly, it's amazing the amount of development work that they did that year with just a little bit of funding and only like a part-time person involved as the coordinator. Maya Hood-White was actually the first coordinator for the WRE. Oh, interesting. She was at Early Mountain at the time, but she sort of was also had this part-time job to kind of work on that. And then Scott Dwyer, who was at, was working in the cellar at Pollock at the time, took over for Maya sometime uh, in 2014, 2015 range. And it was in 2015 that the wine board, the Virginia wine board took over funding for the WRE. So there's more, there's just a little bit more funding available at that point. So 2016, so after one year of funding it for Monticello in 2016, the wine board asked the WRE if they would expand it to the whole state and generously provided funding to allow that to happen. So that's when the coordinator position became a full-time position and a, a gentleman named Michael Atanasi was the first full-time coordinator. He was there for uh, 2016 and 2017. So he was the one, along with the WRE board, who kind of figured out how to serve the whole state because mm -hmm. it is a big state and we have many different winemaking regions and different kind of communities of winemakers with sometimes the same questions and, and, and problems and sometimes different questions and problems. Well... I'd love to tear into that a little bit here. I do have one overriding question. So the Virginia Winemakers Research Exchange, what's the mission statement? I mean, what is its purpose? So the purpose is to promote innovation through experimentation and education in the wine industry. So the idea that in the, that innovation could be something brand new or they could be ancestral techniques that are used in old world wine regions that we're just trying to apply to our fruit, any way that we would be innovating um, in terms of quality. The primary way that we do that is through practical experiments on production scale that happen in wineries. But then we make sure that everybody knows about that. So that's the education piece. Yeah, it's transparent, isn't it? It's very transparent. It's, it really is very cooperative in terms of people sharing both their successes and the things that didn't work so well. So we can all learn from each other. If there is something that works well, that we can make sure that that, that catches, catches hold and other people keep trying that so that our quality goes up. And if there's something that doesn't work, we save each other wasting time. You know, trying it ourselves. <laughs> so. Well, then that's fascinating because you get a chance as the coordinator to see all these different research projects and the and the differences from the different areas within Virginia now, as far as that's concerned, terroir and flavor profile and everything. Definitely. I mean, so my, again, as you mentioned, my first job in the wine industry was at, at Michael Schaff's Wine Works. It's a great place to train. I got to train with lots of different winemakers. We see grapes from all over the place. But I'd only ever worked in one place. So when I took the job at the WRE, part of that was with the intention for myself to get more continuing education to, you know, what, what is 
what's available in the rest of the state, but also what are other people doing and why are they doing that? So it's been a tremendous training for me to get to learn from so many different mentors around the state. I'm curious as your thoughts. It seems like there's a movement now finally to recognize that hybrids are a good thing for Virginia, for Virginia, not a bad thing. And what has been behind this sort of negativity towards hybrids? Because I, admittedly, I didn't have much experience with them before I moved to Virginia, coming from primarily the West Coast and having a European palette background, if you will. But I've become a big fan of Saint Blanc. Chambersen mm-hmm. handled correctly is like good crew Beaujolais. And so what do you see happening here with hybrid versus what's been going on? So I feel like, and and this is just... And and is anybody doing experiments, you know? Yeah, oh, certainly, yes. Um, Yeah, so I I feel like the, the, the progression of things with hybrids, you know, it used to be that to be taken seriously as a wine region, you would need to use the noble grapes. And so, you know, if you're making hybrids, you would be seen maybe more as a rustic wine region, something that's so very hyper-local and not really being part of that larger communication with the rest of the world. I mean, we think France actually had hybrids for a time, right? Exactly. But they legislated that you rip them out because they're not noble enough. And I do think that that hybrids, there's there are some things in terms of how we farm hybrids and the winemaking for hybrids that... Sometimes we sort of treat them less nobly also. So we're more likely to overcrop them. We're less likely to pay as much attention in the vineyard because we don't necessarily have to. And, and I mean that, I mean that very um, historically. I mm-hmm. feel like the, there are so many folks now that are doing a really great job of farming their, their hybrids. But also just sort of looking at there's some unique challenges to some of the hybrids in terms of their chemistry when we get them into the winery that sometimes make them a little bit out of balance or they their balance point is in a different place than we would we would look for. So some of the reds don't have as much tannin, for example. Some of the whites have a lot more acidity, which in a warm region like Virginia, we actually like that acidity right. being there, right? There's some things in terms of just the nuance of how we're farming those and how we're making those. But I do think this sort of, the new generation somewhat of wine drinkers are more willing to try new things. They're a little bit less tied to tr- the traditional varieties that they would, would would think to be serious wines. And so I think we do see more market value for that. As winemakers and wine growers, I think there's so many things we see about the benefit of growing hybrids in the vineyard. They They tend to do better with our hot, humid summers, for example, with rain events, with frost events. Right. So, and there's a whole new generation of hybrids being developed. Hybrids themselves are just, they're not genetically modified. They're traditional crosses of different, different strains, but they're sort of crossing them on purpose for specific resistances to disease, but also then back crossing them to get as much vinifera genetics to them. So, we're hoping that we can get to the point where we have some hybrids that have good resistance but have complexity and delicacy and balance that we would expect coming from those vinifera. Well, when I interviewed Tony Wolf several months back and I was up there, he brought a wine out for lunch, which was Marcelin, the grape. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a proprietary name on the bottle, and I tried it. And I go, well, this tastes like a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Malbec. And he goes, well, you're about half right. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's a cross 
between Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache. And, Interesting. Yeah. And we are now planning some at the research station because yeah. it's resistant. It appears to be to powdery mildew and other things. And we're looking at this, and he says there's just a lot more of this, more vinifera cross going on in Europe. And then he said, you know, in 2050, we could be growing entirely different grape varietals here in Virginia we don't even know about today. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we think about how plants evolve over time, how plants become, you know, adapted to the environment that they're in, Vitus vinifera, noble varieties, you know, grew up and became adapted to a very particular place. And now we're taking those same components of genetics and trying to transplant them to different places around the world. And sometimes they, they work better than others. And so I, I think there's, there's a lot of, of questions, even in the traditional places that vinifera grow well, that, you know, with, with climate change, folks are thinking differently about what would we be planting, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Sometimes that's a different variety. Sometimes it's a variety that maybe doesn't exist yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, that's fascinating. I I thought, well, that's interesting. What's the biggest challenge you see right now in your position? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. (laughs) You know, I think my position, I tend to work with folks on very individual things going on, but there are sometimes larger, larger trends that come out. So the way I work is that I, all the experiments that we do through the WRA are, are initiated by the winemakers themselves. And so this time of year, we're in, in June and July, I go around and talk to winemakers about what's going on in your cellar. Is there a particular problem that you're having? Is there something you read about or that you heard about on a, on a, on a podcast or a <laughs> webinar or something like that, that you'd like to try in your own winery? Is there something in your own winemaking that you're like, you know, the one place I want to grow next year is this. And so usually when that happens, we end up with about five or six just general themes that people are, are tending to deal with. And sometimes they have to do with whatever happened in the most recent vintages. So for me, I think so many things are just very, very individual to each, each different winery. It's hard to come up with like, you know, a big thing. But I think the overall idea is how do we continue to push quality consistency and understanding how these varieties that grow well in Virginia, how we can help them have their Virginia expression of themselves. So, you know, for example, Cabernet Franc is a, is a, is a variety that grows well in Virginia. We tend to really like it here as kind of a medium bodied red wine, but the expression of Cabernet Franc in Virginia is is different than, for example, what it is in California right? and or in the Loire Valley or in, you know, other places around the world. So we, we want to think about what are the, what are the things that are specific to the variety that those grapes are giving us, but then how do we bring out what they're giving us in Virginia versus what they would be giving us somewhere else? And so that might be a different, different amount of oak treatment, different amount of cluster inclusion, different sort of different nuances of the winemaking to say, how do we, how do we maximize what's happening here? So I think that's overall one of the questions that we tend to think about, and it just gets applied differently to different situations. You know, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation and um, it got me thinking, and now I understand the reason for it, but I'd love to understand how this might have the type of impact on Virginia's wine industry that have quality, and that is simply the lack of a central lab service here for the vet mares. 
it never occurred to me until Kirsty Harmon mentioned to me, you know, we don't have a lab like they have in Sonoma or Napa or like that where we have a lab. I thought, oh, that seems like a business ready to be made. Well, so it's it's an interesting question because it's been, there's there's multiple different iterations that have kind of been kicked around. And Kirsty herself actually ran a service lab for a period of time. When I was at Wineworks, of course, we had enough of we well, had yeah, enough had- works work to be our own lab. But there's, you know, I think even if we look at like in California, ETS is right. like the 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 stalwart. ET, we send samples to ETS because they are large enough that they'll do some really specialized work. But, you know, ETS has sort of their main headquarters, and then they have little regional outposts in different places. And each of those outposts does, like, the basic chemistry that a normal winery would need on a regular basis. And then if you need specialized things, like for the research exchange, sometimes we want to know the specific type of tannin that's in this wine versus that wine. Well, that takes a much more sophisticated analysis, much more um, expensive instrumentation so those all go to kind of that big lab, but even even ETS, it sort of evolved over time along with the wine or with the industry, right? The founders of ETS, they started out like you know with a lab in their basement that they were sort of running. Was this ETS. Marty Bannister's company eventually? Um, it's um, oh, they're I've have even met them. They're lovely people, Marjorie and I can see him. Okay, oh, it's not they. They're still the owners and they're still very active. Oh. But so there, but it's, you know, I think that's, that's the role that ETS has played here in Virginia. We do have some service labs. So Virginia tech does have a service lab that Bruce Offlin was actually part of setting up and they will, a lot of folks will send things, especially during harvest when you need numbers Mm -hmm. very quickly, they'll send them to the Virginia tech lab. And it's really two folks that are kind of running that lab, like out of this, this small little space at Virginia (laughs) tech food sciences. But for some of us, that's kind of a ways to get our samples during harvest. When we have juice samples or fruit samples, they could start fermenting along the way between here and Blacksburg. There's one new business that's starting up here in Charlottesville. She's been in business for a couple of years and she's going to, I think she's planning to expand her business in the next couple of years to do some more local work. There are a couple of wineries in Northern Virginia that will take in some lab work. But really, it requires this set of instrumentation in order to be able to do those analyses at with some economies of scale. So if you have to do all of the wet chemistry by hand, it's it can be a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of human, so human I, training. I see what so, the challenge is. You know. So, yeah. So I think it's it's... We haven't figured out that piece 100%, but we do have some of those resources around. And I think each smaller region will sort of end up with their own solution to that or working solution to that. So you still make some wine, your own brand, which, by the way, is, folks, if you can find a bottle of Ting wine, buy it. It's really good. (laughs) Chardonnay I had from Shenandoah Valley and Mount Airy was awesome. The Cabernet Franc is really good, really delicious. Very small amounts, but find it, buy it. This must be fun for you to do this as well, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. When I when I decided to take the job with the research exchange, the hardest one of the hardest parts was realizing I wouldn't be making so much wine anymore because I I love the winemaking. It was very hard to leave the team at at Michael Shapps. I, I loved the team that I got to work with there, but I also really loved getting to make wine. So I talked to the board about it when they when they hired me on and they said, you know, we not only would be okay with you 
making a little bit of wine on your own, but we would we would almost expect you to. Okay. Um, and it's really just been a wonderful way to stay grounded in the the reality of what winery work looks like. I think sometimes when you spend a lot of time, you know, reading reading papers and looking at lab numbers, you can get a little idealistic about what things could look like or should look like or what kinds of, of techniques somebody you might recommend for somebody to do when you're actually in the trenches doing that work yourself you realize how much work it is you are reminded about the practicality of things how much time something really takes so i think not only does it kind of you know feed my soul to be able to make a little bit of wine here and there but it also i think helps me to be better at my job in serving the winemakers around the state just in being more more aware of what their life really looks like. Well, that leads me to another question I'm curious about. Do you ever see yourself going back into being a full-time winemaker at a much larger operation <laughs> once again? I really don't know. You know, I think there's I have been so blessed to have had the opportunities that I had at Wineworks to serve each of those different roles and get to learn those things. And I, I enjoyed that a lot. I've always been a teacher at heart and I get to teach in my current job, which I love. I love doing research. I love finding out new things. Really, I love learning new things myself and I love sharing those with other people. And I feel like my current job lets me do that. So, you know, I, I, I don't think we ever know what the future holds, but I think right now I love what I'm doing, but who knows what, what will happen in the future. <laughs> so what is the oldest bottle of Virginia wine you've been able to taste and enjoy? I'm curious. So when I was at Wineworks, Michael has a, a wonderful library of older vintages. I think, I'm not sure the oldest bottle I've had, but I remember enjoying some 1998 Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc from Jefferson Vineyard. Okay, right. That, if I remember correctly, Michael said was still sort of his favorite vintage. Yeah, um, I, I, I hear 98 being talked about all the yeah. time. And and I think for Michael, that might have been one of those first times that everything kind of all came together in a beautiful vintage. And, you know, but, I mean, we we had that wine not, I mean, it was only a couple of years ago. And so, it was still really doing a doing wonderful things. Yeah, so. that's the biggest frustration I've had since I've been here, the availability of tasting Virginia wine with bottle age on it to see how it develops, see the nuances and the things associated with that. I'm starting to collect in my own personal cellar because I want to have older Virginia wines to go back to in 10 or 15 years <laughs> and say, wow, that's interesting. Well, and I think we've we started to do that fairly early on. So my husband and I moved to Charlottesville in um, around 2000. And I think we've we started to really explore the local wine scene probably about 2002 or so. And so we do have, we, I think we have a few of those sort of older bottles stashed away as well. But, you know, so many Virginia wineries just don't make a lot of production. Right. And so it sells out rel rather quickly, which is great for the business. But it's just a lot harder to, to find those older vintages um, unless you stash them away yourself. So hopefully your patients will be rewarded. Oh, it will be. <laughs> I, if I put them down there and just forget about them. And, you know, it's, I can't wait uh, uh, to, to have what I call these one bottle offs where it's like, oh, 
forgot about this bottle for 12 years. Yeah. Wonder what this is tasting like well, today. And, and actually, as we're talking, I realized in a couple of years ago at the Virginia Viticulture Association meeting, Nate Walsh, who was the president at the time, organized a tasting for some of us, like, you know, after, like, um, with dinner at, at Tastings, which is a restaurant here in Charlottesville. Right. And the proprietor had all these really older vintages of, um, of uh, Virginia wine. And, and I'm sure there were vintages older than 2018 or uh, 1998 that we tasted that night. He pulled out some really old, um, some of Jim Law's older stuff. Um, but I remember for me, the, the best bottle, the most interesting bottle of the night for me was one that came from Shenandoah Vineyards. And I don't remember the vintage, but I think it was in the eighties sometime and it really held up. And, you know, it was special to me because I was familiar with the fruit from Shenandoah when, mm-hmm. from when I had worked with Michael, but just to sort of see how those vintages held up. But there was also a lot of inconsistency amongst the bottles, right? Because there's a lot of difference. And I, th- I think our wine industry has really grown up a lot in that time too. So honestly, I would recommend that you go check out tastings and, and ask him about some of those older vintages because he's got some of them stretched away. All right. Well, I'm going to put that on my <laughs> list here. Well, that leads me to my... Favorite question to ask everybody. So what was that one bottle of wine, that aha moment that you had, where you had this bottle and you went, wow, that's it. That was the, that one aha moment that the light bulb went off and you said, man, that's unbelievable. I get it now. You mean for wine in general? Yeah, or you wine mean in Virginia general. Wine? You personally, oh, wine okay. in general. So when we first, when my then boyfriend, now husband, and I started first started to explore the world of wine, yeah, I think it took a little while to kind of start to put the pieces together and say, what was it that that we really liked? What are the things that we wanted to invest? What what are the what's what's we we could tell that there was a lot of really fun stuff to know out there. But there was one trip, and, and mostly we were we were going to California at the time, so most of our impa- our influence was California wines, and really that's what was we were living in Atlanta, so. That's kind of what was available in our wine shops as well. But there was one day we went to go visit Silver Oak. I think it was in 1998, Silver. No, it was in 1998. It was on our honeymoon. But it was whatever vintage was the release then. So maybe it was a 96. Yeah, probably 96, which was a a very good vintage, by the way. And it was. It was just sort of one of those. It was one of those first red wines. And I was like, there's a lot in here. It's really delicious now. But I think if we if we buy some and we put it down and we, and we wait, I I, I want to see what else comes out of it after years and years and years. So I think that was probably the first one that was like, oh, this is this isn't just a hobby. This is like a lifestyle. <laughs> right. And well, so that that leads me backward just a little bit. What spirited you and your husband, your boyfriend at the time, to start to explore wine then? I think we love the idea of hospitality in general, just having, having people gathered around the table to have great conversation, enjoy good food, to enjoy good wine. Wine is a piece of that. But I think wine itself, like we were, we're interested in the, the flavor of the wine, but we're also really interested in how you make it and, and the science behind it, but maybe, maybe more so the balance of the science and the art that goes with it. And then also just the idea that, that the same variety planted in different places has these different expressions. There's just so much complexity to it that it's, I think we really love the, the adventure of exploring that complexity and in enjoying the different expressions of what happens in different regions of the world. 
Do you have or have you worked with and have any clients outside of Virginia? So with a research exchange, because we're funded by the Virginia well, Wine yeah. Board, we, we work exclusively. But I mean you but professionally. Yeah. Professionally. So when I was at Michael Shapps, we only had Virginia clients. It wasn't a, a you know, a, um, a stipulation. Just at that time, we only had Virginia clients. So I've actually, yeah, I've only actually worked uh, worked as a winemaker with Virginia Fruit. So it's Virginia, so, Virginia. It's gotcha. Virginia, Virginia. Well, <laughs> yeah. well actually, I'm sorry. That is the the one time I did I worked with fruit outside of Virginia. In 2018, I had already moved on to the research exchange, but Michael Shapps also has a, a production in Burgundy. And I got a call a couple of weeks before harvest, and he said, well, would you happen to be able to come out to harvest in Burgundy? <laughs> And really, for the first time I had been working in professionally on wine, I wasn't tied to a particular winery for the entire vintage. And so I did get to go to Burgundy oh, and work with Michael wow. in 2018, which was a, a, it was a tremendous uh, vintage in Burgundy. Right. It was, there was no frost, so they had enough fruit. The weather was just right. The fruit was just fantastic. And it was probably... It may be the only time I really get to work with Pinot Noir. So it was it was absolutely a wonderful... I think I was there all of 10 days because the vintage all comes in very quickly. And I did have to come back to Virginia to take care of some things. But I did get to, to work with some Burgundy fruit, uh, which is, you know, what, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> what about that town of Bone? Oh, my goodness. It's, what a beautiful town. So, yeah, and the place... So Michael's... Michael's Geet is in Merceau. Merceau, yeah. And so where where we were staying was was in, at his place, but we were making wine at a place down the street. And, you know, at, at that place down the street and in the evenings, like the moon would come up right over the, the steeple of the church. And it oh, was wow. like, it just looked exactly like what it should look like in France. <laughs> but it was, it was a very, it, it, again, it's not very large production. It was a, a modest enterprise, but it, we, there were some really delicious wines that came out of that vintage. So that's, it was very special. So what do you think about the future of Virginia wine in this regard? I still believe that there's a, some of the best vineyards, and I've been told this by some of the vintners, some of the best vineyards may not have even been planted yet. In Virginia, but I get a lot of pushback when I when I talk to people about. I think it's going to require a large player with the capital and experience to come in here and develop some significant tracts of vineyard land. Shenandoah Valley appears to me to be right for that type of development, but I think ultimately that will happen. Whether it's European, whether it's Californian, where somebody's going to come in here. I mean, the zoning family proved that that works, and I'm surprised yeah. other people haven't <laughs> latched onto that. With the West Coast burning up, what do you think? I mean, is, why is it viewed maybe as such a bad thing as opposed to what I think is a good thing to raise everybody's profile? Well, so let me get to the, the, the idea of where the, like, I would, I would, I would agree with you that I think that there's a, there's just a lot of terroir to explore, left to explore in Virginia. I think one of the things we don't think about so much, we, we tend to think about ourselves as the Virginia wine industry, but Virginia is a big state. And there are some areas of Virginia, you mentioned the Shenandoah Valley, the Shenandoah Valley has wonderful 
diverse soils. It's got some really nice properties in terms of rain, lack of rainfall for Virginia. Cooler nights. Uh, you, you know, I, I buy grapes from the from the Jordan Brothers off of Mount Erie Vineyard, which is in the Shenandoah Valley. And when I go up there to visit Tim, I feel like it's always 10 degrees cooler in the middle of the summer and there's always a nice breeze. Right. And it's just like this feels like a better place to be growing grapes. But there's, but I do think that there's a role for each of the different places in Virginia for what they're doing. You know, Chatham Vineyard on the, mm-hmm. on the Eastern shore, they just have a really lovely expression of Chardonnay and Cabernet Franc that comes off of that vineyard. So I think we have a lot of exploration to do in terms of which varieties are doing well in which place and how, I mean, we think in California, you don't plant the same varieties in, you know, in, uh, you know, on Monterey Coast versus, you know, in Lodi. Well, yeah. Those are very different climates. Well, and, and I tell people, just look at France. You don't, yes. you don't plant yeah. Pinot Noir in Bordeaux and you don't plant Cabernet Sauvignon in Burgundy. I mean, right. and then the Rhone and you Exactly. Keep and and, and some of those Virginia. regions are not that geographically far from one another. But there's enough difference in the mesoclimate to say this grape is really expressing well here and this grape is expressing well there. So I think in Virginia, when we think about where where will the best vineyards be, some of that is the vineyard site itself and some of that is the, the fit of what we're growing in which places. Okay. And I think we've, we've made tremendous progress in that area in the last 25 years. People who are replanting now a lot of times are replanting with different row spacing, with different vine spacing, but with different varieties as well. I mean, Jim Law is at the forefront of that, isn't yes, he? Yeah, for sure. Jim Jim Law is doing that, but and I mean, Michael Shops when they're when they're replanting Shenandoah, um, a number of other places as the early mountains doing some replanting and also kind of changing some of those things. So we're learning from what we've been um, working on for the last several years. In terms of, of investment, I would say you know I feel like one of the reasons that Virginia remains mostly local. There's not a lot of Virginia wine outside of Virginia, or at least it's not well known outside of Virginia. Um, really does have to do with scale of production and sort of scale of running the whole business. So, you know, getting together um, enough production to, to go through distribution, but also then having those distribution channels um, understanding the distribution distribution system, having the marketing, having the business to go along with that. And you think with some of these folks that, you know, it's a family-run operation. It's already the expertise of, of growing wonderful grapes and making delicious wine. Then there's another set of expertise in terms of, of actually getting that business to happen. So you need a certain scale, I think, to have all of those pieces together. And a lot of times scale does require a uh, capital investment as well. But I do think one of the things that makes our industry special is that idea that we have all these individual stories and we have these individual things going on. I think that in that sense, it reminds me a little bit of Burgundy. But we don't have to lose that. I agree. And I'm not saying that we have to. I mean, mean, what I really chuckle about when I talk to people in the wine business who think they know everything about wine and they talk about Burgundy and they go, well, you know, that's a negotiant. And I look at them, I go, uh, everybody's a negotiant. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Mean, Drew Ann's a negotiant. Yeah. Okay. Jadot's a negotiant. I mean, exactly. you go down the list. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they don't make high profile, high quality wine and aren't viewed right. at the upper echelons because 
they happen to be a negotiant. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and, but I, and I would say that that's probably, you know, if we had our ideal situation, we would have the resources and knowledge to be able to market our wines well, even outside of Virginia, that we would have the quality of wines to be able to back that up with consistency, but be able to maintain those individual stories. And, and I, as you, I mean, I think you, you've, as you've said, I think Burgundy might be a good, good way of looking at that, right. To say, how do, how do we balance those different things as we move forward as an industry? Well, my opinion, again, there's 300 or so wineries repeatedly here in Virginia today, give or take. And I haven't tasted them all, but I'm trying damn hard. But at least 15% now, I've come to the conclusion, could be a bit more, produce as good a quality of wine as anybody in the world. Full stop. Now, the varietals, as we know, are a little different that drive this. Like, I'm a big fan of Petite Man saying this is a huge future of Petite Man saying yes. in Virginia. But the pure quality level is there. No doubt about it. And that's really the message that has to get out. So that people just don't default, the consumer now, to California wine, to Oregon wine, even Washington State wine, but keep thinking about Virginia wine as part of their whole mix. Just as they think of Burgundy or Bordeaux or now Rhone or Provence, you can go down the list of things that weren't thought about 10, 15 years ago by the average consumer. Right. Well, it, it warms my heart to hear you say that you, in your in your view, that we have that level of quality. I think that within our industry, we... we we like to think that we do, but it's great to hear somebody who has um, your experience saying that as well. I think we do have some really world-class wines being made here in Virginia. And yeah, the question is, is how do we, how do we, how do we make sure that people think of those wines when they're thinking of Virginia? I think at the WRE, a lot of times we, we, we talk about ourselves as an emerging wine region, as this, this wine region that's been growing up and, and we're, we're, we're ready to, to, you know, to sort of make our entrance onto the, onto the stage. Um, and so a lot of the questions are, yeah, how do we do that well so that people associate us with, um, with quality wines, interesting wines, unique wines, things that aren't just like you would get somewhere else, but are really unique and, and special for Virginia. Well, Joy, you're doing your part. You're, you, <laughs> I'm trying. You, 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 you're, you're absolutely, <laughs> your contribution to the business and what you're doing here is critical to this qualitative and this quality component we're talking about right now. Well, I mean, I feel like, and, and I want to be very clear, this isn't just me, the, the WR. The WRE is consists of a board of directors that are all winemakers themselves that have really been plugging away at this, inventing this system for us to get better. Well, know, for the record, that's Emily Pelton at Veritas, correct? Matthew Finau, King Family, I assume. So Emily Pelton, Matthew Finau, Kirsty Harmon, who's at Blenheim, Michael Henney, who's at Michael Schaap's Wine Works, Scott Dwyer, who used to be the research enologist. Um, he's actually in Oregon, but he stayed on the board. Okay. And Ben Jordan from Early Mountain. So we have a tremendous board well, of, incredible team. of industry leaders, right? But also younger folks that really have um, more time. They, you know, they're, they're at the, they started this essentially toward the beginnings of their career. So this will be part of their legacy, but also the Virginia Wine Board that has been funding our project at at very generous levels, you know, since 
since they, they came on in 2015, but especially since that state expansion in 2016, this is a, it really is a, an investment that's being made by a, a, a number of people. And, and just to say the, the Virginia wine board itself is funded by the producer tax that, that all right. wineries pay. So really what the WRE is, is one reflection of this, this investment that the industry is making in itself and each other to say that we know that if, if, if we get better and if our neighbors get better, we get better too. David King used to say repeatedly that a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think that's really the, the, the thought behind what, what we're trying to do, you know, at the WRE, but also just as a community of winemakers. On that note, I'm going to draw this interview to a close, but this has been terrific, Joy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Folks, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Joy Ting as much as I did during the interview. Besides coordinating the efforts of the Winemakers Research Exchange, as I mentioned, she also produces small amounts of wine under her label, Joy Ting Wine. They are in short supply, so I highly recommend that if you can purchase any, you do. They are terrific. In my upcoming podcast, episode number 26, it comes with a unique twist. The interview was with Kirk Wiles, the CEO of Paradise Springs Winery. He produces wine here in Virginia, along with producing high-quality wine from the Santa Barbara region in Southern California. Kirk likes to say that Paradise Springs is the only bi-coastal winery. He is also currently the chair of the Virginia Wine Board, so stay tuned for that episode. And as always, thank you for being a listener. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss another one. And if you have any comments or questions, please direct them to me at fred at finewineconfidential.com. See you on the other side. Music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song, Acoustic Shuffle, under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>